0: When Jesus of Nazareth began His earthly ministry, one of His first tasks was to choose disciples. These twelve men were chosen to follow Jesus wherever He went. They were commissioned to assist Him in His ministry. And Jesus chose these men that He might invest Himself in them. They were to become students of His teaching. And they were to become followers of His way of life. On a grander scale, Jesus calls all of His followers to be His disciples, and He calls all of His disciples to make other disciples. As we think, for instance, just of Matthew 28 and verse 19. There's many other indicators to that end. So God has designed that we learn true doctrine, that we live out that doctrine as we pattern our lives after Jesus, our exemplar, and then that we so invest in the lives of others that we equip them to join us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this vein, we have the privilege today to learn from a master disciple maker as we consider here Paul's words to his disciple Timothy in the latter half of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy as we continue to work our way through there. If you'll make your way there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. In this brief section of Second Timothy, we have two aspects of faithful discipleship which emerge. Two utterly essential features in authentic discipleship. I'll warn you to move into this text. We won't learn anything new here at all in that sense, in the sense of these two aspects. They'll, be, they'll not be novel to us in any way. Yet I believe that as familiar as they are, they're matters that are widely missed among God's people today. So we ask as we consider Paul discipling Timothy, are you a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you steering others to become faithful disciples of Jesus Christ? If we do not understand the two aspects that emerge from this correspondence between Paul and Timothy, we are no disciples of Jesus Christ. And we are steering anyone under our influence toward a false Savior. We need to come to terms with these two aspects of what it really means to follow Jesus Christ. We must understand that in light of this text, we must fully embrace the reality that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be disciples in a fellowship of suffering. We're called to be disciples in a fellowship of suffering verse 10 of chapter 3 second timothy you however have followed my teaching and we find one of those connectors again that we simply must stop to consider when it says you however it's obviously pointing to what precedes remember chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 verses 1 through 5 we have described there the moral morass of the last days in which unrighteous people appear to be godly they say a lot of the right things They claim to know Christ the Savior, but their lives are not changed. There's not a transformation that corresponds to the true doctrine. That is fleshed out there in verse 2. You can just look through it and following down to verse 4. These people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and proud and and all of this as religious people. Working way down through that text, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. So they look as religious people, indeed as people who follow Christ. But their life is not transformed. It's not changed. And therefore, they are inauthentic. Now Paul, as he writes to Timothy in all of this book, is thinking as a disciple-maker. And so he says to his disciple Timothy, but you. You, however. You, however, in contrast to these false teachers, you, however, verse 10, have followed my teaching. And he'll list here nine different things that he has left for Timothy to follow, that he has displayed before him. First is his teaching, speaking of the true doctrine that flowed from the Holy Scriptures. You have followed my teaching, not these who are into all of these genealogies and myths and these ridiculous things that just waste time and don't lead to godliness. You know my teaching, rooted in the Scriptures, rooted in God's Word. You have followed my conduct. This is a theme that just pounds over and over again, doesn't it? It's not just what we believe in teaching, it's the life that flows from that teaching. And Paul doesn't just say that, he lives it out. You have followed my way of life. What I teach, I also live. And you know how I've lived on a daily basis before you. you followed my aim in life. That is the purpose of Paul's life. If we would ask what it is, as we look at Paul's writings, it is clearly to magnify God, to glorify His name in a broad sense. He lived a markedly selfless life so that the name of Christ was proclaimed as great. And as Timothy watched this man, he could see that in his life, that the aim of it was to magnify God many times at the expense of himself in a self-forgetful way or under persecution. It was very difficult for Paul, but that was his aim of life. And nothing was going to change that. And Timothy knew that. You know my faith. The word can be used in different ways. But probably not here of his orthodox teachings since that's already been described. More likely here of his dependence upon God. You have seen the faith that I have in the visible world, in the invisible God. You have seen how I have trusted the promises of God and lived today as if those promises will come true. You have seen my patience. Patience certainly with people. Patience in trials. Utterly essential for anyone doing battle for Christ in a sinful world is patience. To bear with people and to bear with difficult situations. You have seen my love. Speaking undoubtedly of his love for God, but certainly of his love for people. Chapter 2 and verse 10, he says, I'll endure anything for the sake of the elect. I live my life, I give my life for the love of people. You've seen the way that I love people and give myself to them. You've seen my steadfastness that is bearing the trials of life with persevering endurance. The list continues in verse 11, but there's a bit of a shift there from Paul's character to his experiences as one proclaiming the Gospel. Verse 11, my persecutions and my sufferings. You've seen them as well. That happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. these are all towns right where Timothy was raised. So if Timothy was born in Savage, this is maybe Lakeville, Apple Valley, and Northfield. Something along those lines. He knows right where these cities are. And he knows exactly what took place in these cities. Do we remember the first missionary journey? Pisidian Antioch. Almost the entire town comes to hear Paul speak. But before he knows it, jealous Jewish leaders have driven him out of town. He goes on to Iconium. Again, there's a great response from the people, but Paul has to leave town because people have come to town, stirred up trouble. They want to circle Paul, take stones in their hands, and throw them at him until he's dead. Or at least will never come back to their town again. He has to leave Iconium in that fear. And he goes to Lystra, and the fickle crowd that at first wants to worship him now does circle him, takes up stones in their hands and throws it at him, blooding him, beating him until he's on the earth and they pile him with stones until they believe he's dead, drag him out of town. He's such a beaten mess. They don't even think he's alive. Now There's an interesting thing about these three cities and the story that goes behind them that we find in the book of Acts. All of this took place before Timothy was a disciple of Paul. So Paul is, in a sense, just choosing these three cities from the first missionary journey, but I think he does so perhaps for a reason because Timothy has joined Paul in his subsequent journeys and has gone through all kinds of suffering himself. I think in part what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, you signed on for this. You knew exactly what you were getting into. All of the things that happened to me in these three cities that are right where you live, you knew what you were into. Again, the picture so often drawn of Timothy is that he's this wimp, this weak, frail individual. and He might have been frail physically. We don't know. All we know is he had some physical problems with his stomach. You can be a pretty burly guy and have physical problems with your stomach. But the idea that Timothy was this this fearful, retiring, wimpy guy. Just put this together again. He knew what Paul had suffered in his area. And he said, I want to join you. I want to go into that ministry of proclaiming the Word of God, and I know what it means. I may find myself at the bottom of a pile of rocks. I may find myself in jail someday. Timothy did not sign up so that everyone would like him. He didn't just like to hang out with Paul. He said, I want to join the work of proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul to his disciples says, Timothy, you remember how I've been persecuted. You remember the trials that I've suffered. All of these aspects of Paul's life as a disciple-maker are laid out there for his disciple. You have followed me in all of these things, Timothy. Notice what he says in verse 11 about his suffering. He says, These persecutions I endured, yet from all the Lord rescued me. In other words, I in the midst of these trials endured them and. You know, Timothy, never forget God always has the last word. Here we are. I didn't die in Lystra. I'm in prison right now and you're suffering there in Ephesus with these false teachers, but here we are. We're still running. We're still working. There's still another day to serve Christ. It wasn't going to be long before Paul would be executed. But God would deliver him from that as well. So endure, Timothy. Keep persevering under the pressures and under the trials. And this leads Paul to make a major assertion about discipleship as he gives wisdom to his disciple, verse 12. When he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a tendency to read that verse I think, wrong in a couple of ways. And the first is to say that there's the normal Christian over here who maybe doesn't really want to live a godly life, at least doesn't want to do so to the point of being persecuted. But then there's these special Christians over here who really want to live a godly life. They have this unique desire, and they have it to the degree they're willing to suffer for it. And so Paul says to somebody like Timothy if you want to live a godly life, remember you're going to suffer persecution. I don't think that's how we should read this verse at all. And Look at it carefully in verse 12. All he says is all who desire to live a godly life. That's the normal Christian desire. If you don't have a desire to live a godly life, I don't know how it can be that you're in Christ. This will be a desire that He gives you. We may fail. We may struggle. Certainly there will be sin in our life and need to repent. But the desire to live a godly life is the basic Christian desire. So when he says anybody who desires to live a godly life, he could simply say any Christian will be persecuted. Doesn't kind of sound like a possibility, does it? It says it will be. Now, here's the second place where we sometimes get off, and that's that we think persecution is physical torture, or imprisonment, some way losing our freedom, or our money, or something like that. The Bible's definition of persecution is much broader than that, and it comes to us in corporate terms. That is, it's not just about me physically suffering necessarily. Those who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted is this basic truth of the Christian life and it includes our corporate identity with our brothers and sisters through Christ who suffer today. There's places where your unbelieving neighbor can go in this world, can carry on business, can live the way they want to live, and there won't be any problem. You go to that same country as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and you're going to have problems. There's things you're going to want to do, such as share your faith with others. That's illegal. So there's a sense of freedom here in our country where we're able to proclaim the Gospel of Christ freely and widely. We can't do that in every part of this world. We are part of a persecuted people. There are people today, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are imprisoned. And if we were to go to these people in these countries, we would need to and want to identify with them in their suffering, not with the government that's placed them there. We may even encourage them to continue doing what they're doing that's led them to be thrown into prison. We're part of a persecuted people. On a more specific level in our daily lives, there is a ridicule. A derogatory orientation toward God's people. Now, you can look and you can watch this, and I watch this fairly carefully with secular media sources, journals and newspapers and these kinds of things. You can watch the criticism of liberal Christianity in these pages, and you won't find it. It just won't be there. If people deny the miraculous if they deny that the Word of God is God's inerrant Word, if they deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, if they believe what the Bible says about things such as homosexuality and the distinction of roles between men and women, they believe what the Bible teaches, if they don't believe any of these things, they're safe. But these same sources have no problem ridiculing and speaking in derogatory terms toward those who are Bible-believing Christians as we are. They say things about us that indicate we are at the source and the heart of all that is wrong in our country. And they say this without a word of rebuke. If they said such things about Hinduism, they said such things about Islam, it would be a bad, bad day. There would be all kinds of upheaval, but they say those things about me and about those of us who believe God's Word. They say that about us all the time. And nobody cares, apparently. We're part of a despised people. We need to recognize this. Now, do we say, well, I feel a little tricked here. (laughs) No, we don't think that way at all, do we? We know what our Master said. Jesus said, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow Me. You're going to need to let go of your life. Jesus told us this as He called us to Himself. When a man picked up a cross and began dragging it to the place of execution, he didn't plan on returning. He wasn't thinking about his next vacation. This was death. And Christ calls us to this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship wrote memorably on this point, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. Because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts. Jesus said further, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You see the discipleship link. Jesus died, he was persecuted. Paul follows. And what does Jesus say in that call in Acts 9? I must show him how much he must suffer. And now Paul says, you've seen my sufferings and my trials, Timothy. Timothy also is suffering. And so it is with every Christian. On some level or other, we identify with a despised people who the world loves to hit. We weren't tricked into this. Jesus told His disciples, it's necessary that I die, and in that He meant as well, it is necessary that you will suffer with Me. So when you take up a position against the world's philosophies and dreams of self-worship, you cannot expect to be treated tenderly by everyone. Our suffering, again, is not as harsh as many of our brothers and sisters face, but it's real. It is ridicule. It is a dismissive spirit of the world. I stress this because it is here that so many Christians really miss that. And in our situation, with the freedoms that we have, we can be easily confused. To think of Christianity as a self-help movement. I come to church in order that I might improve myself, and that's how we conceive of Christianity. We miss this inherent call to suffer. To identify with a persecuted people. To be ridiculed and rejected. That is what being a disciple of Christ means. We gather on this Lord's Day as a fellowship of those who suffer. We've taken up that call. We haven't chosen Christianity because of its ease and simplicity. Now in contrast, verse 13, the false teachers are evil people. They are imposters who will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. False teachers do not improve with time. They spiral downward. And speaking of the media, sometimes that all plays out right in front of our eyes, doesn't it? As we see the doctrine become more twisted, more deviant, and it's only a matter of time when the immorality breaks into the public realm and there's some great scandal. of some religious guru who has fallen into sin. If they do not repent and begin following Christ, there's no hope for them Indeed, they are taken in by their own game and they are deceived as deceivers, probably by Satan, perhaps as well by some of his followers and lackeys. Now what are we hearing in this? These are kind of those troubled passages that aren't always easy to read and to think about in Christian churches. We're not reading here of a discipleship in, let me talk to you, Timothy, numerical growth and financial prosperity. That's not what the discipleship course is on here, is it? It's not discipleship in the latest theological fad or business trend. It's not discipleship in recovery from emotional wounds and hang-ups, although some of that certainly can be addressed when you suffer. It's discipleship as a call to suffer hardship for Christ and with Christ. Again, in Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer rightly charges this notion has ceased to be intelligible to a Christianity which can no longer see any difference between an ordinary human life and a life committed to Christ. He died in the 1940s. Imagine if he was living today. He's saying there is a Christianity that has no concept that it's really different from the world. And the world as it looks at that Christianity has no concept that such people are any different from them. It is important that we root ourselves as a church reminding ourselves that we have been called to a life of ostracism and suffering and hardship and persecution. We cannot miss that because of the freedoms that we enjoy in this nation. Is there a difference in your life? Is it evident that you have followed a Christ who was crucified? This difference should show itself in the goals that we set for our life, in the orientation of our life. The way that we use money. We identify with the despised Jesus. We have a different way in which to live. So let us root ourselves there deeply as a church and remember that as the followers of Christ, we have been called to a life of suffering and identification with those who are despised. Disciples in a fellowship of suffering. Now at verse 14, there's a shift And actually, we see it by way of repetition. Verse 14, "...but as for you." Now, didn't he just say that? There's nothing between verse 10 and verse 14 that shows anybody with whom we're contrasting. So verse 14 is contrasting back with the false teachers, the false way of Christianity that's godly on the outside but does not transform the life. And now we have here then a second emphasis. So we need to grab this, and I think this emphasis as well is lacking. And we need to deepen in it. Disciples in a fellowship of suffering is followed secondly by disciples in a fellowship of Scripture. Verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now think of what he's saying here. As for you, in contrast to this false way about life that the false teachers are proclaiming, this second point needs to be made. That we are to be people of the book. We're to be given to the Scriptures. Notice what he says there in verse 14 to continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. Now the firm belief is You've heard the true doctrine, and you've put your faith and your trust in that true doctrine. But did you notice what he also said? Consider the people from whom you've learned it. They're not deceived. These people are not spiraling downward morally. They are genuinely devoted to Christ. These are people who love you. They don't teach you the Scriptures and then charge you twenty They're not trying to get themselves up by teaching you the Scriptures. These are people who love you. Remember them. These are the disciple-makers who do not ransack the Bible to find opportunities to introduce their myths and genealogies so that everyone can waste their time to moral ruin and that you can somehow think they're really special as Bible teachers. None of that is true here. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Paul, his disciple. This is the one we're talking about. Remember my life. But I think it also probably includes Lois and Eunice. His mother and his grandmother. Why is that the case? Because Paul was not teaching Timothy from childhood. He didn't meet him. Paul was serving Satan when Timothy was in his childhood. So he's talking about his mother and his grandmother who shared the Word of God with him, taught him the Scriptures, probably beginning at age five as they would take the Hebrew Bible at ages five or six and begin to teach them the letters and show them the teachings of God's Word. Remember your upbringing. Remember your heritage. Paul writes to Timothy, you've been discipled by a mother and a grandmother who love God. Salvation is realized through these writings, he says. They're able to make you wise unto salvation. That is, they can give you God's truth such that you come to saving faith. This has so much to say, doesn't it, to those of us who are parents, to all adults within the context of our church family, but particularly to those who are raising children within our homes. Are we bequeathing to them a knowledge of the Scriptures? Are they seeing the sacredness of God's holy Word? To that end, I would encourage parents, first of all, to read the Bible. You need to know what you're passing on. You need to study it as you gather with the church, but you need to know it and read about it and read in it so that you are saturated in the Scriptures. You're not going to pass on what you don't know. And your children are going to know whether you read the Bible or not. If all they have ever seen is you reading the Bible to them, they'll assume that you just read the Bible to them. Do they know that you are a Bible reader? That you feed on the Word of God? That's where it's got to start. But secondly, we need to read the Bible as a family. This might start with children's Bibles for the very young, perhaps, but in any event, and I think even with all ages, to begin with the very basics of the Word of God and reading the Bible to our children. The attitude toward the teaching and preaching ministry of the local church is a crucial part of this. How do you, as a family, how do you, as parents in your leadership position, talk about? interact with, what attitude do you have concerning the preaching and teaching ministry of the church? If all your children ever hear is complaints about a teacher and complaints about the sermons, that's pretty much what they'll gather from it. And they'll discern that it's a thing to be judged and a thing to be uh, concerned about. But do they hear from you questions about what they're learning in class? Do you talk together ever as a family about the teaching of a sermon? And what was there? And what can we learn from that? Are we talking about the Word of God? And in daily interactive life, whether it's something very mundane in the home or we're passing somewhere in the car, we're interacting on various levels, we don't necessarily bring out a Bible and point to verse chapter every time, But do we talk about the Bible ever? If we never talk about God's Word except when it's in the context of the gathering of the church, we send the message that that's where the Bible's supposed to be kept. Might as well have it on a chain in the building. No, we need to bring it into daily life because it's God's truth. It is our life, the book of Deuteronomy says over and over again. It is our life, these scriptures. So we need to be sharing them in our daily walk with our children and and passing on to them a reverence for the Word of God for all of our adults. So we should ask: Is the next generation learning the importance of the Bible from us? Are they seeing that importance in our church, in our families? And for those of you that are children among us, appreciate the heritage that you have. Appreciate that you're in a church where somebody is seeking to work hard to understand what the Bible is saying. You have teachers in this church, young people, that you've had as you're passing through from class to class. You have teachers that love God's Word. You have teachers that work hard to teach it to you week in and week out. It's not easy to teach the Bible. You have from this pulpit Week after week after week, sermons that are carefully developed as God's Word is studied carefully in context, people are trying to convey to you the truth of God's Word. Appreciate that heritage. I trust someday you'll appreciate it far more than you do. But it's also very possible for you to be very well fed and to go out into this world and discard it all, to throw it away. And to to not conceive of the heritage that you've been granted in the context of your homes and of your church. Timothy, says Paul, let's remember who taught you the Word of God. Remember their lives. Remember my life. You've followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life. You have followed me as a disciple. Don't turn away from God's Word. Now, at verse 16, he really gets down to it and to what this Word is. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It's sad that our time is so fleeting on such a profound passage, but I've developed just some summary Ideas, but we need to deepen in it and think through it here somewhat carefully. This verse is one of the most important statements in the Bible on the subject of written revelation. We come to church on the Lord's Day for reasons other than the study of the Bible. But we do come for that reason, don't we? We're here week in and week out to hear the Word of God. We should know what we're handling. We should know what we're considering and the opportunity that is ours. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Through the centuries, this verse has played a crucial role in the church's understanding of inspiration, what we might call the Bible's self-concept. It is not specifically that authors are inspired, but that the text of Scripture is God-breathed. And we gain that idea from this passage. We cannot pour over it too long, but let's consider each phrase. All Scripture. It refers to every sacred text that God intends His people to identify and classify as Scripture. He refers to all that body of writing that is rightly recognized and categorized as sacred text. Remembering, we don't determine what that is. We recognize what that is. It's not that church leaders through the ages have said we're going to have a council and we vote this one in and that one out. It's more of a matter of recognizing what God has done. All of the Scripture, anything that falls within that category that's to be categorized and recognized as sacred text, all of that is God-breathed. Now I think here, before we get to the phrase God-breathed, that this idea of all Scripture refers to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. But I think that it also relates to the apostolic writings. There is in 1 Timothy 5.18 indeed a quotation of Jesus, which comes from the Gospels. We have in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, you remember that great line from Peter. Paul writes a lot of hard things, and people like to really twist what he says like they do the other scriptures. Already, before the New Testament is complete, we have. One author of Scripture referring to another author of Scripture as doing just that. Sacred text. So think Hebrew Bible, think more broadly, and I think it then very clearly applies to what we know today as the Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament, some which were current at the moment, are included in all of Scripture. Now, all of Scripture... We recognize it. We don't determine it. But whatever God has given in this sacred body of text is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God. There's no way to read that if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all and not to see there a reference to the creative power of God. God creates the world by speech, by word. This word in Scripture is God-breathed. He breathes out the Scriptures in a way that I don't think we'll ever entirely understand. It's a reference to Him as the ultimate source of the written texts that we know as the Scriptures. They are the product of His creative genius and His eternal purposes. So God so steered the biblical writings that they compose written communication that perfectly conveys His truth to His people. That's what the Bible is. Think of that. Think of it for just a moment again. And it should bring us back week after week to hear the Word of God. It should bring us back to our Bibles day after day. To read the Bible is to hear God speak. There's a lot of qualifiers that are necessary. Let's gain one of those qualifiers at least in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. How is it that God inspires the text? We gain some help here from Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, who fills out some of what is left unsaid by Paul. 2 Peter 1.20 says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No Scripture is a brainchild of the author. I just have this great idea and I've been wanting to say this for a long time, and here it is. Rather, no prophecy, verse 21, was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Clearly, there's qualifiers that are necessary here. People used their minds. They used their abilities. God did not dictate these words. They didn't sound from the sky. But somehow in this mysterious process, as individuals began to write, the Spirit of God moved them along to say what God wanted said. Just as we can use a tool to get something done, so God used authors to say what He wanted to say. Maybe to make it more pointed, we can use tools to communicate. I'm not a computer. I'm not a word. But I can convey what I think and what I desire through the writing of words on a computer. God used authors. And He steered them through the influence of His Spirit to write precisely what He wanted them to say. Using their mental abilities, all of their capacities, fully engaged as they wrote, God watched over the process that He led them to say exactly what He wanted them to say. So that every Scripture, all Scripture, Anything that can fall within that category, which we now know as the Bible, is the breathed out Word of God. And it is profitable, verse 16 says. Profitable. All Scripture has a purpose, and it is profitable to that end. It seems to divide out in two ways. Concerning what we believe, the Bible is profitable for teaching. That is, it positively communicates what is right. That which corresponds to the nature of God. Here is the mind of God. Now negatively, notice the next statement, couples with this, negatively reproof. It reveals to us what is not right. What is out of sync with the nature of God. This seems to emphasize particularly what we believe. The second couplet seems to particularly emphasize how we live. The Bible is profitable for correction. I'm living a certain way, certainly based on truths that I believe, and the Bible says no, that's the wrong way to go. Negatively, now positively for training in righteousness. Positively, it sanctifies us by encouraging spiritual growth and formation in the likeness of Christ. So it's profitable for training in righteousness so that, verse 17, the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Every letter of the original text is the very Word of God. And it operates such that it will be fully sufficient to equip us for every good work that God desires. You say I'm dealing with temptation. I'll never be what God wants me to be. Your answer's in the Word. We must be purified by the Word. It's not magical, but we'll never be purified. We will never conquer temptation apart from the Word. Jesus went that way, didn't He? As Satan came to tempt Him in the desert, what was Jesus' response in Luke chapter 4? It stands written. If Jesus answered temptation by appealing to the authority of God's written text, who are we to think we're going to get there any other way? We must appeal to the promises and the truths of God's Word as we fight in a world that's bent against everything God wants. It's profitable for all God wants to do within us. We say, I want to grow. I want to be the person I'm not. I want to change certain things about who I am and temptations that are part of my life. It's God's Word that must purify. Now it can go right through us like water through a pipe. It doesn't saturate in at all. We've got to work at assimilating what God's Word says. But it is through assimilation of His Word that we will be progressively transformed so that we will be competent and equipped for every good work. Timothy, as a disciple, you need to saturate yourself in the truth of God's written Word. You need to be a man of the book. Every letter of the original text is the very Word of God we're being instructed to understand. That doesn't mean that every passage is equally important. The Bible progresses in the unfolding of its revelatory records. Certainly, we understand that. The Bible was not dictated by God to man. Authors used their full capacities. All of these qualifiers said, it is the very Word of God. It's the very words that God wants to convey to His people. They are infallible. They are inerrant. They are fully sufficient. They are internally consistent with themselves, and the nature of God in all of its parts. The Bible is consistent with who God is. Christian, you don't live in that world. I mean, You just don't live in a world that thinks this at all. And we've got to come to terms with this. A life saturated in Scripture will be radically distinct from what people believe all around us. Vishal Mangalwadi, Indian philosopher and theologian, says this so well. Many people reject the Bible because they consider it irrational and irrelevant. Others believe it is to be responsible for racial prejudices, sectarian bigotry, slavery, the oppression of women, the persecution of witches, opposition to science, the destruction of the environment, the religious wars of the previous millennium, and discrimination against homosexuals, just to name a few. Well, he's a wise man and he says, first of all, if there's that much attack about the Bible in those many areas, it's obviously been a very profoundly influential book. But what is important for us to grasp in this context is not only that, that we live in a world that hates this book. It does not hate it if you cut parts out. It doesn't hate this book if we don't insist that all Scripture is breathed out by God. If we rip the miracles out and we rip the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ out and we cut out all those hard things Jesus said about sin and we throw out Paul certainly and his ridiculous views about men and women and we realize that this whole thing about homosexuality, just forget that. We've got to pared down pretty far about this point and people say, oh, we can live with the Bible like that. with his own theological problems. In the 1930s, Yale University professor Richard Niebuhr put his finger on the false response of liberal Protestantism. That's the Protestantism that said, here's what the world wants. No miracles, no death of Christ, no real resurrection, no virgin birth. Throw all that out and then we'll accept you. He was perceptive enough to say this, This liberal theology proclaims that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a world without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Under those suppositions, large sections of the Bible are ignored or denied as inauthentic and the Bible loses its its integrity as God's Word. Do you believe all? of Scripture is God-breathed. If you do, if you really believe that, and that truth is transforming you, you are among a despised people. How radically different. You've heard it before. It's a one of those quotations I just keep repeating. Listen how different it should be for us. Not ripping out of the Bible what is not acceptable to our world or ignoring it. But as J.C. Ryle writes, the truth of God's written Word is the primary foundation of the Christian soldier's character. I'll change his words to apply to all of us, but he says, you are, as a Christian soldier, what you are. You do what you do. You think what you think. You act as you act. You hope as you hope. You behave as you behave for one simple reason. You believe certain propositions revealed and laid down in Holy Scripture. You believe Jesus was born of a virgin. You believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. You believe that Jesus Christ died as the Lamb of God to offer sacrificial atonement in the place of God's people. You believe that He rose from the dead literally, victoriously, and that all of the miracles of the Scriptures are true and accurate descriptions of what really happened. And you believe that when God speaks, He keeps His promise. That none of His promises will fail. That's why you are who you are. Ryle continues, a religion without doctrine or dogma is a simple impossibility. Faith is the very backbone of spiritual existence. No one ever fights earnestly against the world, the flesh, and the devil unless he has engraven on his heart certain great principles which he believes. So in a world that wants to ignore so much of Scripture, let's root ourselves and deepen ourselves in this reality. As disciples of Christ, we have been called into a communion of suffering for the truth and for the reputation of Christ. And as a communion, we have been called to become a people of the book, of the Word, the breathed out Word of God every teaching that takes place in this church from children to adults. Our worship services as the Word of God is opened and understood in its historical context, grammatically faithful, trusting it to be the very words of God. May we gather each Lord's Day to say, that's my book. I follow Christ as one willing to suffer for Him. Indeed, one ridiculed as a people for Him. And I come to feed on His holy Word. In my daily life, I heed the Scriptures. I read them. I seek to come to know them. And yes, they're dry at times. And yes, there's times I don't feel like reading them. And I don't get things about the Bible. But I keep trying, keep reading, keep seeking to discern, and keep asking God to give me wisdom in His Word through His Spirit. Jesus stood in the wilderness because He trusted the Word and so must we. This church will only stand as we trust that every Scripture, all of Scripture, is breathed out by God and is what He has given to sanctify and to transform us so that we will be willing to suffer, so that we will live a life of distinction that does look different from a world that wants nothing to do with this book in its fullness. May God lead us to that place. And for anyone who does not know Christ as Savior, yes, it's a hard call on one level. But God will enable and equip you to be everything that He wants you to be as you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. As you do that, he will bring satisfaction where there's been nothing but heartache and pain. And suffering will be a joy. Suffering with God's despised people will be a joy. Let's bow for prayer. We trust You, Father, for Your mercies, for Your grace. We don't like to suffer And we struggle to live our life on the basis of Your Word. But I pray that as disciples of Christ, we would be given to a communion of suffering and of Scripture, saturating ourselves in Your truth. Again, for anyone who knows not Christ, we ask that You would draw them to Yourself this day. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.